All right, I encourage you to get your Bibles out and open them to Matthew chapter 5 and get your lift notes out if you don't have them already. And I mean, you're welcome to jump and grab one off of the uh, connection cart there in the lobby. That's totally fine if you uh, need to do that. We do encourage uh, note-taking here because in a sense, the idea is that this time in the Word on Sunday mornings is the beginning of your time in the Word for the week. And then throughout the week, you can refer back to the lift notes, and they really would just be kind of a jumping-off point for a time to go deeper with God, a time on your own to study, come back to the things that, that you felt God might be saying, and the idea is that collectively we're, we're on a journey together as a church family. Uh, but there is a, an individual piece to it, too. We might collectively study the Word here uh, and be in a series where we're, we believe God's taking us in a direction, uh, but there's, there is a hugely important piece about how you take that and how you process it on your own during the week and, and listen to the Lord and, and go back and read the scriptures or go deeper and study, meditate on them, ponder them, reflect, listen to what God's saying and, and make it real. And that's really where the rubber hits the road. This is, this is not about just information. That's not what we're about. We are never, ever going to be a church or, you know, Tell me and we'll, we'll shut it down. Like forever churches is going through the motions, not being authentic in that relationship with Jesus. And we're just, you know, going through the motions for the sake of being religious. Then, hey, it's time to stop. <laughs> and some denominations may need to hear that. You know what I'm saying? No. Sorry. Yeah, also want to encourage you that, you know, the lift notes are a great tool. But not everything that we get are going to say is going to be on there because we do our best to listen to the Holy Spirit and to speak what he's saying, um, what we feel like he's saying. And so God will be speaking to each of you individually. So I really want to encourage you to have your heart open, to have your ears open. And when the Holy Spirit speaks to you specific things, to also write those down on the side in the lift notes, don't just fill in, you know, where there's a blank. That the blank are the things that we felt like God spoke to us and we could and we planned for, but he loves to give fresh fire and he always brings fresh words. And so both are equally as important, you know, what he spoke ahead of time and then what he speaks now in the present. But just want to encourage you to keep your ears and your heart, you know, just as the um, disciples were walking with Jesus when they didn't recognize him. And I don't know which two they were, but when he left, they said, we're not your hearts burning within you when he opened the scriptures to us. And so that is what God wants for us. Every time that we gather to open his word, he wants our hearts to burn within us as he opens the scriptures to us. So I want to encourage us to write down those things that his spirit is hot on. Because as much as I think I'm going to remember afterwards, I'm always like, what was that phrase? What was that word? What was that sense? So yes, he's got some fresh fire that he wants to pour out on each of us. Amen. Okay, so we are in our fourth week here in a series called Building Your Abundant Life. I'm going to jump right into the passage for today and then back up and give a little bit of context and review that we've covered so far. 
It is a series that is based on and is all about an exploration of what is famously called Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So here are the opening words. Matthew 5, verses 3 to 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And then I actually mistakenly cut off that last verse. So good thing I got my Bible here in my pocket. Oh, would you read uh, verse 12 there, Matthew 5, 12? Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thank you. Okay, Jesus' opening lines here of what we've called essentially a visionary manifesto for life. This is a creation event where Jesus is creating the vision of the abundant life that he embodies, that he's going to teach his followers to embody. But there is no teaching like this anywhere in these Matthew 5 to 7. This, it's long, but it's concise in the sense of it is a comprehensive worldview in a nutshell, in one sitting. It's utterly remarkable. There's a good reason why it's famous. Jesus is setting forth the vision for life. And now it's, of course, it's expanded upon in the rest of the Gospels and there's other nuances that are added, but in Matthew 5 to 7, in this one sitting, this one sermon, it says Jesus went up on the mountainside, he sat down and people came, crowds came from all over and he spoke. Matthew chapter 5 to 7. And it is breathtaking in its comprehensive nature of the abundant life that God wants for each and every one of us. It is so beautiful in the vision that is painted of the kind of life that's possible. These are not meant to be the the unreachable ideals that just make you feel bad for how far far you fall short. As we and we're going to get into that heavy next week, so not going to say much more about it than that. This is a vision for life that Jesus believes that by the power of the Spirit, you can and will live into as his beloved child. But as we looked at last week, he opens it up like a master artist who wants to paint and repaint the canvas of our soul's conception of who God is. And so he starts with the pronouncement of eight blessings. He actually says blessed nine times, but the last two are together in one blessing. 
he pronounces blessing after blessing after blessing. And if you think about it, this, these are the opening lines for Jesus' vision about life. He wants to repaint the canvas of our hearts about who God is and how God wants to be known. Like that is the most important thing about your life. What is your concept of God? That's where the vision for life starts. It's about who God is and how God wants to be known. What you believe and actually, actually believe about God is the most important thing about you and will completely change your life one way or another. That's why Jesus, is start, Jesus starts with these pronouncements of blessing about who God is. These are the ways in which God is initiating that undeserved goodness in our life. The word blessing, if you weren't with us last week, simply means joy because of divine favor. So when Jesus is pronouncing a blessing upon you, the idea is you can have joy. You can take joy in the divine favor upon your life. And here's eight different ways in which there is an abundance of divine favor upon your life. Now, what we're going to see throughout the Sermon on the Mount is you can reject that. You can say, no, thank you. You can walk away from it. So there is a response on our part to receive it. So it's kind of like there's a, a potential here. It's, there's a potential for joy because of the abundance of divine favor. Are you going to receive it? Are you going to say yes? Are you going to partner with God? And we see that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where he has this unbelievably powerful call to action for all of us where he says, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is the one who builds their life on the rock. There's potential in reality. The potential is God's grace is on the move, man, like unbelievably, overwhelmingly so. What are you going to do about it? So you're going to build your life on this rock so that your life can withstand whatever storms of life come? Are you going to be the wise man who lives into this abundant life by saying yes to God every step of the way and choosing to build, take responsibility to build your life on the rock? and therefore live into all these amazing blessings? Or are you going to be the fool who hears them and walks away and does nothing? That's Jesus' words at the end. That's his altar call, is take action on the good news that God is putting forth. So that's where we started last week, all these amazing blessings, but we couldn't even, I couldn't even get over the fact that we just had to dive into this concept of blessing and how central it is to Jesus' vision for life. He wants to paint a picture of the nature of God being so abundantly good. He wants to start us off with this tidal wave that God is so much better than we could possibly even imagine. Life starts when we allow... Our, the canvas of our souls to be painted and repainted by the fact that God's nature, God's heart is just blessing after 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 blessing. So receive it. That's how Jesus starts. And so today, we're going to get into some of the, briefly, <laughs> we're going to attempt to go through these eight Beatitudes 
in the next 30 minutes. And that's because there is so much amazing material in this Sermon on the Mount that we, we don't want to be here for the next three years. <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't be bad. It's like, it doesn't really get any better than, you know, Jesus talking. <laughs> like, do you have a better source to examine in your life for truth? No, we don't. <laughs> we'll just go on to a different source of Jesus talking after this. But we're going to keep it moving. We're going to keep it flowing. Uh, so what, what we, what we want to do is, as we've introduced the, 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 the core of what this vision of life is all about in this heart to, for God to bless, to bring that joy because of the divine favor upon our lives, and we're going to briefly hit each one today, but want you guys to be looking forward to, as we get into the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus really expands upon each one. And so he introduces an idea, eight ideas, really, about the character and nature of God, who God is, how God wants to be known, how he wants to bless your life, how he wants his kingdom to break in. And then as he gets into the the meat, so to speak, of the Sermon on the Mount, we will see these expanded on. And so similarly to the way Jesus was shockingly brief in the Beatitudes, he just, boom, says it and then moves on. We want to try to be brief in the sense of just one Sunday to bring some clarifying terms because we're not first century Jews, so we don't hear it the same way they heard it from 2,000 years ago. So we want to give a little bit of context and some clarifications. And in that, we want to encourage you to take this week and reflect on these Beatitudes. There's, there's eight of them. So what if you were to take one each day and really ponder it, just in your own time with God, in your own quiet time, your own scripture, even if you're driving to work, it doesn't take long to get the, the content of one and then meditate on it, ponder it. What does this look like in my life? God, what would you want to say to me? What do you want to say to me about this beatitude, which just means blessing, by the way, this beatitude for my life. And so what we've tried to do is make it very interactive for you this week. And so we've taken, if you see the lift notes, there's a, each of the beatitudes, what we've done is just, in a sense, through our own time in God's word, pondering, meditating, studying, we've just done a way of, a way of meditating on God's word is to just, in a sense, re rewrite or translate or summarize God's word in, you know, modern day English in the way that you think that helps you to ponder God's word. So we're not trying to make a, you know, a new version of the Bible. We're trying to take the Bible and, and, and ponder it, meditate on it, think about how it affects our life and, and make it that good news that Jesus intends it to be. And then so that it's, it's a springboard for prayer. It's a springboard for conversation with God. It's a springboard to get you, like I'm thinking as I'm doing dishes, I'm thinking about one of these for an hour because I'm putting in my own words and what does that look like and what do you want to say to me about it, God? And that's why the Bible all over the place talks about blessed is the one who meditates on the word day and night. So what does that mean? It doesn't say memorize all of Scripture. It's take a chunk of Scripture and think about it and rethink about it and ponder it and let God speak to you. That's the person who gets like a tree planted by the water who grows fruit and bears good fruit in all seasons and never withers. 
And so that's kind of what we want to facilitate today for all of us. Yeah. There are a lot of scriptures. Uh, I mean, sorry, there have been so many sermons, is what I meant to say, on the Beatitudes. And they've almost in some ways become trite to church culture. And I just want to encourage us that just as he is saying that the word of God is meant not ever meant to be words on a page. It's supposed to be a place of encounter with the living God. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow. So there's an encounter and an active movement of God within us and, um, as we open our hearts and minds to that awareness, you know, and even just thanking God as we open the scriptures to meditate on his word, just thanking God, you know, in faith, God, thank you. Thank you that you are going to be opening up the eyes of my heart like Ephesians 1 talks about, and you are going to be renewing my mind like Romans 12 talks about. And, um, yeah. It just the reality that these may, as we read them, just come off as, oh, I've heard that a million times. But God wants to take us deeper and deeper still. He wants to give us nutrients. He wants to bring us revelation. He wants to bring us to a place of encounter with the living God. Yep. Amen. So expect that. As we go through these eight, expect that maybe even just one is going to hit you the Holy Spirit's going to hit you with kind of that aha encounter. Like, that's for me today, right now. Needed that. I'm going to chew on it this week. I'm going to talk to God about it. It's a blessing that I am saying yes to receiving. Okay, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're going to take a little bit more time on this one, because this first blessing, this first beatitude, really is the key to all of them. We can deduce that from what we have observed already in the book of Matthew. If you remember back a few sermons ago, if you don't, Matthew summarized Jesus' preaching as good news about the kingdom of heaven. The gospel is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So when Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, that should perk our ears of like, whoa, that's the gospel. That's the whole gospel is summarized as the kingdom of heaven. So this is pretty important. <laughs> this is kind of like what life is all about now and all the way into eternity. So if I don't pay attention to the rest of them, this one's mine. So poor in spirit seems to be that access point to the kingdom of heaven. It's how we receive the good news. It's how we receive the gospel. So what is poor in spirit? It's interesting. It's used one and only time in the entire Bible right here. So what is poor in spirit? We have no idea. <laughs> other than to deduce from all these other things that Jesus would say. It's not one word in the Greek. It's not used anywhere else in the Bible. 
So to summarize and to try, I mean, this deserves its own message, but we'll see it more in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. So I would assert for you that poor in spirit is a deep humility that recognizes and confesses our utter need for and dependence on God in every way. My favorite, least humble disciple of Jesus confirms this for us. 30 years of living in this kingdom for Peter, the man who once told Jesus he knew better than Jesus himself about God's plans for Jesus to the point he rebuked him. Let me just say that's not poor in spirit. Went on to say this. They're all all 30 years later, after that process, that journey of living into the kingdom of God, 30 years later, Peter says this. 1 Peter 5, 5 to 6. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I thought grace couldn't be earned. It's just free. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he will exalt you. God opposes the proud. Those are mighty words from a man who once told God incarnate that he knew better than him. Do you want God to oppose you? I don't. (laughs) We are talking about some fundamental things here. Grace cannot be earned but you can oppose it with pride. Humility is the conduit. It's our yes to God's grace being received. Pride is the pathway to you opposing God. Humility says, God, I need you in every way. I can't do it on my own. I don't have it all together. I need your help. Humility postures our heart in the proper place for God's grace to reign. God's grace is his undeserved goodness and his empowering presence. Those two things. New Testament grace, those are the two senses. Undeserved goodness, you don't deserve it, you can't earn it. And God's actual empowering presence in your life. Pride opposes both of those things. Pride claims to not need undeserved goodness because pride thinks you deserve it. Pride also says, I don't need God's empowering presence, I can do it on my own. 
On the other hand, the whole kingdom of heaven, all of God's goodness and blessings, as it is in heaven, so also on earth, transforming your life when your heart is postured with that poverty of spirit that says, I am dependent on you in every way I can imagine. For my righteousness, for my strength, for goodness, for transformation. Any hope I have of anything good is you. It's that poverty of spirit. It says, I cannot do it on my own. And the good news from Jesus, the gospel in a sense is right here. When you come to the end of yourself and you're ready to confess and you know it and you feel it and you believe it, that you can't do it on your own. You're, it's not your righteousness. It's not your power. It's not your strength. I don't have it all together. I'm, I'm a mess in every way. My only hope is you. Jesus says, you're in a good spot. All of heaven is yours. That's how he begins his vision for heaven on earth, his vision for your abundant life. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Going to move on <laughs> after you bring a laser here. It's so much, but so deep. But that's an intro to what we are going to see Jesus return to in the Sermon on the Mount in a number of different ways. So we can get that as the definition, in a sense, the meaning, and then we got to have it in our hearts and we're going to see Jesus take it deeper and deeper. What we have here in the first sentence is it, it's a promise. It's a promise that we will see the kingdom of God break through in the way that we need it as we come into agreement and are aware that, you know what, I'm blessed. I'm poor in spirit. I am aware that everything I have without you is in a state of lack and poverty, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. As I, we were just kind of looking up the Greek and contemplating that word, the poor in spirit, poor. I am in a state of poverty and lack without him every moment. And I need him. I need to be connected to him. I need to be abiding in the vine like John 15 talks about so that I can experience the kingdom of heaven breaking through. So we're not meant to stay poor, just in defeat, knowing that we can do nothing on our own. What he's offering us here is divine partnership, that in every moment, ours is the kingdom of heaven when we recognize that we can do nothing on our own strength, that we need him, that he's our good father, that he's by our side, that he's within us, that he's overflowing, that we can experience the joy because of divine favor 
which is what the word blessed means. We can take joy because of divine favor, because ours is the kingdom of heaven. These beatitudes are meant to be a turning point. They're not meant to be just a statement that is powerless. They are meant to be something that we proclaim, internalize, declare, and stand on. That when I feel poor in spirit, which ideally should be all times, because we are in a state of poverty without him, but with him we have everything. But it, this, it's a proclamation and, and a place of faith that we can stand on. That when I feel poor, when I feel defeated, when I feel like there's no way out, when I need his breakthrough, even in the little mundane things, even in the small things, he wants to meet us in everything. He wants, and you know, sometimes we might have the idea that, oh, well, you know, God's, God's got enough going on. He, this is just a little thing. Okay, this phrase sticks out to me a lot. Is he not worthy of the glory? To be glorified in all things? Is that not his desire? We were going over those, those verses um, a couple weeks ago. He wants to be glorified in absolutely everything. Nothing is too small and nothing is too great. And he wants our story to be, he wants the story that we tell to be in every situation, everything trite, everything mundane, seemingly mundane, everything huge. He wants our story to be one of kingdom breakthrough and praise where we can say, ours is the kingdom of heaven. He came through for me. And so as you look in your lift notes there, under blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We just wrote a summarizing um, interpretation to ponder. We encourage you to write your own. Take joy in the divine favor that as you humbly recognize and confess your dependence on God's undeserved goodness and empowering presence, all of heaven is yours. And as Don pointed out, that never stops. That is the abiding in the vine that Jesus speaks of later. We never get to a point where we say, well, thanks God, we're good. I don't need you anymore. I'll take it from here. No, this is the rest of life and into eternity, <laughs> I would argue. We never stop being dependent on God. So it's this humble dependence that is the conduit to heaven breaking in. It's a permanent posture of the childlike heart. All right. But there's an insidious and subtle thing that the enemy can do sometimes. Because sometimes there can be a false humility. Oh, I'm so bad. I don't deserve this. I'm unworthy. Well, here's the trump card. His blood is better 
and stronger. His blood is so perfect that there is no stain on us that his blood doesn't wash away. Amen. All right. Let's get ready to fly. <laughs> Seven Beatitudes in 21 minutes. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Thankfully, this one is pretty easy. There's no secrets here. It's just unbelievably good news. Our meditation, our interpretation and kind of translation for just pondering God's word is this. Take joy in the divine favor that God sees your pain and sorrow. He cares and will work to comfort, heal, and be the lifter of your head. When you're thinking about the nature of God, I love that this is like the second thing that Jesus says because human pain and suffering is something we all have universally in common. And so Jesus goes right after it because that's like bubbling on the, on the top 10, top two questions of human nature is what do you have to say about my pain? Jesus says, I have good news. Take joy in the divine favor. God sees, he cares, he actually hurts with you and he is at work and he will heal comfort and be the lifter of your head. Take that to the bank. It's the nature of God and how he wants you to know him. And any time that we don't believe that he cares or lies get in that maybe he cares about somebody more and we're just forgotten, you know, if we're all honest, I think in many ways in our lives, there's, there are places where we feel abandoned. And so it's important to recognize the lies that creep in and to go after them head on, identifying them as lies. I actually want to add one more thing that, you know, in John 14, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit as the comforter. And he doesn't desire us to stay in a place of mourning and hopelessness and depth and desperation and defeat. So the comforting isn't from the lens of I'm still defeated. I'm still in ashes. But he's just going to go like that and make me feel a little better. No, that's not who he is. 
He is the God who lifts us out of the ashes. He is the God who lifts us out of the pit. He is the God who gives us wings like eagles so that we can soar, so that we can have our youth renewed, so that we can be triumphant, so that we can be victorious, so that we can sing his praises, so that we can sing about the power of God who lifted us up on the mountaintop and gave us a song to sing. A place of mourning is never meant to be permanent. We encourage you to write some little notes. So as we're quiet up here, it's because we just want to encourage you to write a word, a phrase, come back to it later. Next one, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The translation is this, or our attempt at a way to ponder God's word. Take joy in the divine favor that as you allow God to rule and reign in your life, the promises you see fulfilled will be greater than you could have imagined. So two key things, promises. We get that idea from the fact that this is a promise that harkens back to Old Testament promises. They shall inherit the earth. There's, that's an Old Testament concept, and it's directly tied to the promised land. God fulfilling promises. That's one of the biggest promises that God ever made. That was a constant promise to God's people. It was about the land, the promised land. And there was points in which then God expanded that beyond their wildest dreams and promised that those who followed him would inherit the whole earth. So that's why the promises thing is in here. The other piece is what does it mean to be meek? Our, our culture has a, a, a horrible picture. It's just kind of like limp weakness. A limp noodle is meek. It is actually an equestrian term. Again, very rare, very rare. Jesus pulls this out of culture, an equestrian term that is used to describe when a bit and bridle is put on a wild stallion. That's the picture of meekness happening. You are the wild stallion. Are you willing to give all of the energy and power and passions and strength that you have and say, you know what, my life is better when I give it to you, God, and let you direct me as you have created me? Because a wild stallion is a spaz of energy in all these various places, right? Do they know how to run the race? They have no clue. So they have lots of energy that ultimately goes nowhere. The bit and bridle directs them to win the race. This is a picture of God saying, yeah, you have a lot, a lot of energy, giftedness, passion, strength. Will you entrust it into my good care so you can go faster and farther than you ever dreamed possible? What I love about this is that our interpretation, at least mine, has been all wrong because blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Meek is not 
in this particular sentence an expression of humility towards man. It is an expression of complete need and dependence on God. And it's giving him our power, so to speak, by saying, I come under you. I come under you. I come under your lordship. I come under your lordship. I am the wild stallion who is coming under your bit and bridle because you are my good father and your ways are better. It is an incredible place of power, actually. Power for us. It's not like, oh, I'm just going to be a limp noodle pushover, you know, to other people so that I can inherit the earth. That's exactly, that is absolutely not what the scripture is saying. We are the wild stallions and we choose to come under his lordship all the time. And that is the key and the method for us to inherit the earth. And as he said, inherit the earth is a statement referring to a broad generalization of all of the promises of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The pondering of this one was take joy in the divine favor that God sees your longing for all to be made right and he will work until you see that day fulfilled. So this is a promise that speaks to the longing of your heart where you look out into the world and you say, that's not right. That is unjust. That is not the heart of God. Righteousness and justice are, are like the same word in the Greek, dikaiosune. It's, it's a sense of justice, which has to do with things coming under the alignment of God's righteousness. So we can all see things in the world that are not right. They far they fall far below God's standard of justice, what is right and good. And God's saying, hold on. I know you hunger and thirst for that. Let me promise you, stay with me. You're, you're going to see it fulfilled. I want to focus on the verbs in that sentence because I actually think they're incredibly important. In order for us to see his righteousness, in order for us to see his kingdom break through, to see the kingdom of the enemy defeated, there is a hunger and a thirst. It's not one time. It's a hunger and it's a thirst. Those are verbs. Hunger and thirst drive us to take action, to partner with him, God, what are you saying over this? What are you doing over this? What's my part? What do you want me to pray and declare? What, what actions do you want me to take? And that as we hunger and thirst to see his righteousness, his kingdom break through where it is not that we will be satisfied, but we must not forget the hunger and the thirst. 
don't give up. No, no, what, just one more. One more. Sorry, sorry. I'm sorry. Holy Spirit revelation, you know? This is actually incredibly significant because hunger and thirst are things that we experience every single day and we must regularly fill. So I think this is a prescription that God is giving us for us to keep in mind that where we long to see his righteousness birth, his kingdom take over the work of the enemy, that he's encouraging us where we would say, oh, but I prayed, I prayed even for a year and it didn't happen or for how long and it didn't happen. How often do we hunger and thirst? Don't give up. That was worth it. That was worth it. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It's interesting because it feels backwards to a lot of people. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You kind of think like, oh, if I'm merciful, then I'll get mercy. Is this talking about like God? Like if I'm merciful to others, am I earning his mercy? No. This is about Jesus saying, as a follower of me, (laughs) you have the blessing of Be the change you want to see in the world. Blessed are you. Take joy in the divine favor that as you extend mercy into the world, you will spearhead the change that you want to see. You want to see mercy in the world? Extend it. Give it out. And watch how it changes the world around you so that you're receiving it yourself. Well, that was my sentence. <laughs> I plagiarized your work. Yes. Hey, it's teamwork. Yeah, yeah. So I don't have much to say on that other than the kingdom prescription for breakthrough is very frequently upside down from what the world would say is the way to go. You know, like he said when he quoted me. <laughs> Whatever change we want to see, to spearhead that, there is a supernatural authority that we take. Even when someone's being unkind to us, we can set a boundary, but we can take that authority in the spirit realm. Just speak it to ourselves. You know what? I forgive them, and I am taking the authority right now in Jesus' name to bring love to see that person with the love of God. And as we partner with God to bring the exact opposite, as we partner with God to do what seems upside down, that, will, that penetrates our worlds with his power, with his kingdom, and it starts marinating and moving and changing things. And so his prescription is often, it's it's opposite of the world's ways. It's completely opposite. The world doesn't say, be kind when people, you know, spit at you and revile you and all of this stuff or whatever it is. It doesn't say, respond with, the world doesn't say to respond with kindness and with love. Now, Jesus does talk about boundaries and we won't get into that, But his response is love. 
His response is compassion. Mm -hmm. And his response is for us to bring, to embody, to incarnate literally because the spirit of God lives within us. And he wants to facilitate a divine takeover, if you will, his lordship over our world. And as we come bringing the exact thing that we want to see remedied in our world, we can expect that his kingdom is expanding and his presence is moving on the hearts, the minds, the lives, the institutions to bring the very thing that we wish was there, but it doesn't have to happen first. We can be the ones that step in, that put our stake in the ground, that facilitate the movement of the kingdom of God coming with power. So when we see the problem and we see what makes us hopeless, we don't have to say, oh, well, I guess it's just not God's will because this bad thing is happening. Jesus didn't do that when he saw pain, when he saw suffering, when he saw sickness, when he saw any need. He brought the kingdom of God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There's only one thing in the whole Bible that seeing God means, and it's all over the place. It's a picture of supernatural divine encounter. All over, from the beginning of the Bible to the end. It's a sensory picture. You know, we know what it looks like to see something. So that language is used to describe that God wants to be experientially encountered by us. That a relationship with God is real to the point that like a relationship with someone tangible here on earth, you encounter them, you experience them, you can touch them. You can see them. The relationship with God is not a mental assent of, oh, here's my professed beliefs that I haven't actually experienced. Spirit to spirit, supernatural, real revelation. And so, Jesus speaks to the reality God wants to be known. God wants you to experience him, to encounter him. There's a thousand different ways the Bible describes people genuinely experiencing relational intimacy with God. That's kind of like the point of it all, in a way, is to know God. In a very true, real, genuine, authentic way. And Jesus Therefore, says here something very important. Blessed are the pure in heart. And you can take this in a couple different ways. Pure does mean clean, like cleansed by the blood of the lamb, which is true utterly and abundantly. But what we will also see in the Sermon on the Mount very clearly is he's also talking about the true and actual sanctification of your heart that takes place. And it matters now. If you want to encounter God, a heart full of lust 
will not encounter God the same way that a heart that has been cleansed and purified of lust. Just a fact. Because your heart only has so much room for affection. It's why Jesus is later going to go on to say, you cannot love God and money. It doesn't work. There can only be one master in your heart. Can you be forgiven for loving money? Yes. (laughs) How much are you going to see God in this life if you're in love with money? That's what he's going after. And we're going to see it in the Sermon on the Mount, that he means it. It's real. But with God's grace, it's possible. So, as we were talking this past week, we really were getting into looking up the Greek of each of these words and really just treasuring and pondering and asking the Holy Spirit to speak to us. So, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There's really a sense of an affection and a devotion and the pursuit of only him. And a phrase that kind of popped up for me, actually, really go really goes in line perfectly with uh, this verse that I love, Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. That there, um, there, the words that popped to my mind were a divided heart or a devoted heart. Our heart is either divided or devoted. Now, there's also the reality that all things and all places in our heart are in a process. So we don't ever want to say, oh, well, I have a divided heart. You know, I'm not in God's will. Okay, I'm not going to see God. Well, that's the whole reason he died on the cross, so that he could transform us, like 2 Corinthians 3.16, from one degree of glory to another. So if he doesn't condemn us, neither should we. We should just grab his hand, acknowledge our weakness, just like Paul did. In our weakness, his strength is made perfect, and he transforms us, and he wants to have a story to tell of our weakness, of our lack of purity, and how he shifted things. And another thing, yeah, I know, sorry, is that Yeah, blessed are the pure at heart is never supposed to be a place of condemnation. It's a place where we can visualize that he's got his hand and he wants to pull us up. He wants to pull us up to greater closeness, to greater revelation, to greater transformation. So we never want to feel beaten down because we're not pure. We want to stand under the blood And not let the devil have a foothold by saying, oh, I'm dirty, I'm not pure. Well, his blood is good enough. And when we accept guilt and shame, we're actually on the flip side saying that his blood wasn't perfect enough to cover us. And it is. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called... Sons of God. Take joy. Here's the interpretation or pondering. Take joy in the divine favor that as you extend grace and reconciliation to those around you, 
you will be recognized as carriers of the heart of God, sons and daughters of the Father of reconciliation. So this sense of peacemaker here has to do everything with reconciliation. This is not a weak peace. This is not the person who's just like, oh, don't argue, let's just be harmonious. No, this is about deep and real reconciliation. Like where the Apostle Paul would go on to say, we are ambassadors of reconciliation. And he would speak in Ephesians 3 about how there was a wall of hostility that divided humanity from God and from one another and how Jesus on the cross was breaking that down, that divide, he abolished, it says, that dividing wall of hostility between man and God and man and each other. And therefore we are ambassadors of that kind of peacemaking to bring peace between God and each other. And when we do that, what are we doing? We are incarnating the heart of the Father. We shall be called children of God because we're embodying our Father's heart when we make that Father's business our life. I just want to say one sentence that, you know, I think the, one of the best modern-day examples of a peacemaker is Martin Luther King. What he was fighting for, I'm, I'm forgetting the exact phrase, but it was something, it was the love. He was talking about this deep, what, what's the? Beloved community. Yeah, the beloved community. And the goal was reconciliation and this love that was ebbing and flowing from every nation, tongue, and tribe, blacks and whites and brown and every, every shade in between that there would be no dividing wall. And so Peacemakers is actually an active call of duty mm -hmm. to break down walls yes. and to bring the kingdom. Mm -hmm. It's not a passive, shove it under the rug, put a Band-Aid on it, just try to make it feel good temporarily. It is a powerful stepping in, putting a stake in the ground and declaring brotherly love the end of hostility and the kingdom of God. And that requires honesty. It requires lots of different things, but it's certainly not shoving stuff under the rug and slapping a Band-Aid on it. We have one more and we're done. Oh. <laughs> we did good. Last one. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Oh, we're going to finish on a fun one. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, Jesus will speak more to this in the future here, but it's a simple but very sobering message. Take joy in the divine favor that as you're willing to stand up and even suffer for what is right and true about God, God will reward you with every good thing he has. All of heaven, in fact. This is a very challenging <laughs> blessing. It is the high call of following Christ. 
that he is worthy of everything. And if it comes to the point that we must suffer persecution, it is part of what is necessary to exalt Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords over everything and everyone. If you encounter it, or when you encounter it, Jesus says, take heart. As a good soldier for Christ, your reward is great. Everything I have in heaven is yours. That's a sober picture for our culture that loves comfort. He does say it is coming. It will happen. Persecution will come your way. The opposition of hell will come your way when you are an ambassador of heaven. I love the verb here. Oh, wait, I'm talking about another verse. Hold on. I'm actually going to read this other verse, First um, Peter 4, 14, because it's almost like a mirror image. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And before that, it actually says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, because the world hated him, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And then it goes into for the name, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So what I love here is that if we are persecuted for righteousness sake, now there's a difference between being persecuted for things that we actually need to repent of or being called out and accused of things because we said things in a rude, unkind way, you know, if, and more, you know, more on that later. But this is specifically when there's just it's just the enemy, it's, it feels like it's the enemy coming at you to step on you and to squash you and, you know, where there's even prejudice because you're a follower of Christ. And when, what is so amazing here that I really think we can hold on is instead of, of wallowing in the first part of the verse, oh, I'm persecuted. This is so hard, I'm persecuted we can actually rejoice because he says the spirit, capital S, of glory rests and of God rests upon you. And it says, yours is the kingdom of heaven. So we can, there's almost like a shifting in our spirits where we would be coming under, oh my gosh, this is so hard. I'm being accused and all of these things are coming at me. It's almost like you can turn on a dime and say, you know what, God? Thank you that your glory is on me. Thank you that your kingdom is opening up for me right now. And there's just a shift in where instead of being a place of heaviness and oppression that we're experiencing, where we're focusing on and having faith for the other half of this verse, which is there is glory upon us. All right. Amen. The question as we leave today is, can you take the, the lift notes, the word, and get back into them and, and spend time pondering 
listening. What is God saying to you? What is he wanting to encourage you with, challenge you with, bless you with, as these are all foundational ways that Jesus wants to paint the canvas of our heart in regards to good news about who God is and how God wants to be known. And we're going to see it expanded upon here in the weeks to come. Let's pray. I will sing a new song.